Specialty Story Session Number 139. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I am excited to bring you a great rheumatologist today, Dr. Anisha Dua, an academic rheumatologist who's been out of her fellowship now for nine years, eight years as we're recording this. We have a great discussion about her journey into rheumatology, what she likes about it, what she doesn't like about it, what the training path was like, kind of some some myths around rheumatology, and much more. Let's go ahead and jump in to our conversation with Dr. Dua. We started the conversation by finding out how Dr. Dua first became interested in rheumatology. So I had an idea kind of in med school. Uh, I took an elective during my fourth year, and I just really, really like loved the doctors I worked with. Um, I felt like they really knew their patients. They were really smart. They seemed very happy. Um, but I guess I didn't completely decide until residency. Uh, I had done some rotations in GI. I was I liked that a little bit. I liked critical care a little bit. Um, but the with rheumatology, I felt like the more I learned about it, the more interesting it actually became. And it wasn't algorithmic. And I felt like you really learned about like the patients and you had long-term care. Um, so I think it was really probably my intern year of uh, residency where I was definitely set on rheumatology. For the students who who may not understand what you mean by algorithmic, can you explain a little bit about what that actually means and and what it was about that, that you actually were turned off about it? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, when I I really like sort of exploring and discovering things and I felt like there were a lot of, and honestly, every specialty I kind of trained and I I pretty much liked most of them. Um, But I felt like some of them uh, seemed really interesting. And then the more I learned about them, the more it became more just like, like a pattern. And so if it, if X, then do Y, you know, mm-hmm. um, whereas rheumatology was seen more of a black box and a little bit confusing, but the more you learned about it, the more, um, more actually interesting it became. It wasn't something that, that you could just follow a straight pattern about. Um, and there was just a lot more nuances to it. So it, it constantly challenged me to really like think about what the patient's telling me, what blood tests I'm ordering, what, um, you know, what their exposures are and, and really just trying to put together the pieces of a puzzle as opposed to sort of following just a preset uh, plan. So that was, that's kind of what I felt with rheumatology more so than some other specialties. Okay. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around rheumatology? Um, I think a lot of people don't really know exactly what it is. Now there's a little bit more awareness just because of like commercials and new drugs that are available <laughs> for different rheumatic diseases. But I know for a long time when I first said I wanted to do rheumatology, people really didn't even know what I was talking about. Um, I mean, I think that there's a little bit of uh, misconception that it's just sort of like more managing chronic pain or things like that, um, which it's not. I, I think that once people start talking about autoimmune diseases and connective tissue diseases, uh, sometimes people just get overwhelmed. They're not really sure what that means because it's not one organ, you know? Um, so... I think that there's just maybe a little bit of misconception about what exactly it is we do or treat. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good rheumatologist? Honestly, being able to listen to patients, um, you've really got to listen and put together pieces of like the puzzle, like I said. So I think being like having that mindset of kind of trying to be a detective, um, think outside the box, uh, because like I said, it's not one organ. So collaborating with other subspecialties, whether it's in medicine or surgery, we do a lot of um, discussions with different different specialists uh, really to try to provide, provide the best care to our patients. So I think um, being open to talking to people, being excited about communicating with, with, like I said, other specialists and really listening to the patient um, are things that are really important. So I think if you really want to be challenged and just mentally stimulated a lot, I think that this is a, a great field for people. Let's talk about some of the patients that you are seeing day in and day out. So you, you had mentioned one of the misconceptions uh, potentially is around just treating chronic pain. But for you and your practice and maybe bread and butter type rheumatology, what types of patients are rheumatologists seeing? Um, so me specifically, my focus is in vasculitis. So I see a lot of, of that disease state um, or those disease states. But I think rheumatologists in general, you know, it's, it's autoimmune diseases, connective tissue diseases. So we see things like rheumatoid arthritis, um, psoriatic arthritis, uh, lupus, scleroderma. Um, the, like I said, a lot of different overlap types of conditions. Uh, and then we see more bread and butter stuff, I guess, would be like rheumatoid arthritis, gout, osteoarthritis, uh, things like that. Um, but really disease states where your immune system is going haywire and attacking different parts of your body for some sort of reason. So that's really a lot of a lot of what we manage. A lot of medical students and, and pre-meds and, and internists who potentially are listening to this, one of the things that they really love about medicine is really coming to that differential, right? Building that differential and coming to a definitive diagnosis, mm -hmm. ultimately. For you as a rheumatologist, especially at a big academic medical center, what percentage of patients do you think you're seeing where you are actually doing the investigation, trying to figure out what's going on versus they're coming to you already diagnosed? I mean, even the ones that come to me with, quote, an already diagnosis, <laughs> I mean, one of the big things is is really listening and yep. figuring out whether that diagnosis really fits. A lot of times, yeah. even those patients who are coming from, you know, outside places, they're coming for an opinion because they're either not doing well or they're not responding to therapies. So it's still really exciting and challenging. But new diagnosis, I mean, a lot of the consults we see in the hospital are either straightforward because it's, you know, somebody with joint pain and you have to go in and aspirate the joint and figure out if, they, you know, what's going on. Um, or it's basically, uh, we're kind of one of the... the last resort people too. So someone's been mm -hmm. in the hospital in the ICU for, you know, a, a week or two and, and they're really not doing well. And now they're having multi-organ failure and then no one's really sure what's going on. They've ruled out a lot of different things. And then they call rheumatology kind of to say, Hey, what's going on? <laughs> so, um, you guys are like Dr. House. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> a lot like that, but uh, we can't do all the, you know, surgical things that he does on his shows. But, um, but yeah, it's a lot, it's very, it's a very cerebral field. So it really is, um, a lot, I, I think even at a, at a academic center, that's a tertiary referral place. Um, I make a lot of new diagnoses. I would say uh, probably half are new diagnoses, but even those that are already diagnosed, I change the diagnosis or change the treatment plan. So, yeah. um, there's a lot of decision-making that, that happens. And, and not to say that the, the primary care docs are doing a bad job, but there's just so many nuances in rheumatology, right? And, and the different reasons yeah, for I'm, joint pain. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, because some of the symptoms are pretty vague um, and 
some primary care docs just aren't really quite sure how to interpret those lab tests. You know, the ANA is a test that's mm-hmm. ordered often and and it's something that can lead to a lot of like patient anxiety when it's positive and when it's ordered in a way that's maybe not indicated it can result, like I said, in a lot of downstream costs, a lot of patient anxiety. Yeah. So I think from the rheumatology perspective, it's us, it's us trying to figure out, you know, is there really something autoimmune or inflammatory going on? Um, and I think that that's, you know, when, when you see a primary care doc, they are managing so many different pieces of things. And so to really delve down into, um, like I said, some of the nuances of what's driving the, the, the joint pain or the rash or whatever it is that's going on, um, it can be you know, a lot. Yeah. So uh, those are the patients that I think they're sending over to us. Okay. So you, you had mentioned <laughs> jokingly about Dr. House, you guys don't get to do all the fun surgery. I mean, they they seem to be radiologists <laughs> and surgeons and everything. Yeah. Um, for someone who is interested in procedures and using their hands, is there room for that in rheumatology? Absolutely. Um, that's something that I liked a lot. And, you know, I actually thought about ortho even because I really do like using my hands. And so we do a lot of, you know, aspirations of joint injections, taking fluid out of different joints, and increasingly ultrasound's been being used a lot. So we're able to do a lot more of, um, you know, injections of deeper structures and things like that. Of course, we're not going in and replacing the entire joint, but there are procedural pieces to it. Um, and so I think uh, you, you do get to, you do get to use your hands and do stuff. I mean, uh, like, like I said, it's definitely more of an outpatient and, and mentally stimulating field. It's not going to be, you don't have like a procedure day. Actually, some people do have procedure days where they do just ultrasound guided procedures for an entire day. Um, so I think that there is definitely the ability to kind of tailor it the way that, that you'd like to. Um, though, like I said, you're not going to go in and be cutting out organs. Yeah. So. What does call look like for you? Um, so it's, it's not bad. Uh, we don't do, you know, we don't sleep in the hospital. Um, uh, I have, uh, you know, I'm in Northwestern, so I've got fellows and residents and stuff on my service. When I am on call, for me, it's I do four weeks of inpatient in a year, um, and mostly it is, you know, in the evenings it's getting phone calls about patients if there is anything that my fellows have questions about. Otherwise, it's um, it's not bad. I mean, you you do your clinic and you go and see the patients who are sick in the hospital um, and give your recommendations. Like I said, most of our stuff is really more talking about patients or figuring out the story with other um, subspecialists, but call is not, uh, there's very few, I mean, there are some, but there are very few rheumatologic emergencies where I would have to be called in the middle of the night to go in to do anything. Um, Most of the stuff, if it's that, if it's that sick, will be managed in a regular supportive care way, like in the ICU or the CCU or something like that. Um, So if there was something like that, I would be more than happy to go in because it would be you know, one of a kind type Not of good. situation. Yeah. What What would be one of those kind of zebra diagnoses that would be like, oh, I need to go in now? Uh, I, I can remember one time when I went in, honestly, um, and that was as a fellow. And it was because somebody had uh, a diagnosis of lupus and they were developing like active uh, transverse myelitis. So they're getting like an ascending, you know, weakness and numbness from their feet hmm. going up their extremities. And so um, the question was whether they, you know, but there was worry about infection. So the question was just whether we should, whether it was safe to go in and really start high dose steroids and stuff like that. So that was the one time I've had to go in. You know, there are emergencies, like I said, you can have pulmonary hemorrhage, renal failure, um, you know, a lot of diaphragmatic weakness from different types of inflammatory muscle diseases. There are things, but, um, in terms of acting urgently, it's, it's usually stuff that, that the ICU would, would manage. I mean, you'd, 
pick up the phone and discuss the case. So that way you can give some guidance on, you know, what to dose or what to do. But, um, you know, plasmapheresis, most of those decisions kind of happen in the ICU, uh, mm-hmm. area, but with our input. Okay. So rarely would I actually physically have to go in. Yeah. Or never kind of. Yeah. So, so do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I do. I mean, I do a lot of teaching, so, um, I run the training program. So a lot of my stuff is, is giving lectures, preparing talks. Uh, I do some research in vasculitis. Um, that's still all, all work related, but yeah, no, I do a lot of stuff outside. I travel a lot, read a lot, play a lot of sports. So Good. pottery. Pottery. Like yeah. <laughs> gotta, <laughs> yep. gotta have pottery stuff in there. I like. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So, uh, you mentioned that you're kind of head of the program there as well. What, what is the training path? What does that look like to become a rheumatologist? So, you know, you do your uh, medical school, you go into medicine, internal medicine residency, which is three years. Um, and at this time, you apply during your uh, third year of medical school if you're planning on going straight or sorry, third year of residency, if you're planning on going straight into fellowship. Um, and then there are two years of required ACGME rheumatology residency or re- rheumatology fellowship, sorry. Um, and then there's at many programs, there's an additional third year. So like at my program, we do offer two or three years. Um, and most people who are interested in staying sort of in academia or doing any sort of like clinical or other research um, or basically just staying in academics will do will opt to do that third year just basically to, uh, you know, either get grant funding if that's what they're trying to do or, um, you know, it, it participate in different types of uh, math, clinical master's programs or educational um, fellowship programs. Uh, so basically it's two or three years. Yeah. Talk about this this big upheaval as we're recording this in the USMLE world with step one going pass fail. Uh, I've been talking about this for about a year or so with the with the idea that it was going to go pass fail and they finally announced it. Um, yep. For you as a program director, obviously you're more in the the fellowship side of it. So after usually the whole step one score is a big deal, and internal medicine has historically not been a very competitive step one score field, although at, at different mm-hmm. programs, it is competitive and Northwestern yeah. obviously being a competitive program, I'm assuming. What is it like for you as a, as a program director for a fellowship with pass, uh, the pass fail step one now? Does that change anything for you and how you're reviewing applicants? Uh, not for me. I mean, we have become increasingly uh, competitive lately, honestly. And so in the last like two, three years, we've this year, I think we were just as competitive as uh, GI and cardiology, essentially. And so uh, rheumatology has picked up a lot of interest. So I'm glad I got into it when I did. But, <laughs> but um, it is it is uh, something I think when I'm looking at applications, I'm looking at them actually more in a pass-fail way. Like, do you have a pattern of, um, you know, not passing these exams mm-hmm. or not? And so for me, it wasn't really about those cutoffs because the numbers have been going higher and higher yeah. as I've looked at applications. And so it kind of became, you know, just did you do well for me the scores are fine they kind of just are predictive of passing tests in the future they don't quite make me certain that you're going to you know be an asset to our field or be a good doctor or someone i want to work with yeah um so i think from my perspective as a program director i'm looking for a lot more depth than than what those scores ever provided anyway so yeah what would quite affect my yeah yeah what what would make a, a resident in your case a competitive applicant to rheumatology for your program um, you know, so from, like I said, it has gotten increasingly uh, competitive. I, I'd like to see some sort of track record of 
of um, showing interest in rheumatology, and that's usually shown through, you know, either presentations at conferences or abstracts, posters. Of course, if they publish something, then that's great um, and have some idea of, you know, what they want to add to the field or what they want to do specifically. Um, I look a lot at letters of recommendation, so um, making sure that they've, you know, worked in a rheumatology setting and that's really what's driving their decision and that the people who they worked with really thought that they were brilliant in some way. Um, so I think having strong letters of rec, having a track record of being consistently interested in rheumatology, um, and then, you know, like I said, publications and uh, some sort of academic angle is something that I do look at. Yeah. For the the internal medicine resident who has rheumatology as like one of their last potential rotations, however, their their program sets it up and, and they're scrambling, they're like, holy moly, this field is is a lot more awesome than I thought it was. Yeah. And, and they don't have that consistent research background or consistent exposure to rheumatology showing that they really love it. What do you recommend for those students or those residents? So that happens, you know, and because it's such an awesome field, it happens like not that rarely. <laughs> and people don't, you know, it's not a required rotation. So, you know, like I said, people will um, go through the rotation. They're like, wow, this is actually interesting. And I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's not just gout. <laughs> No, I know it's 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 really an amazing field. Honestly, it's it, I do not know why everyone doesn't want to do it, but I'm clearly biased. Um, <laughs> so I think you know if that's the case, it's really about just making that um, argument and making it clear as to why you changed your mind. And if it's a matter of like, hey, there's a specific program I want to go to, or there's someone you know you have an advisor who or a rheumatologist who you rotated with that um, helped inspire you to make that decision or you know push that interest. Um, you know, they can make, they can send emails or letters on your behalf just saying, hey, this person was great. They, you know, don't have this track record. It's not necessarily that they've had to publish in rheumatology. Say you've been interested in GI for a long time mm. and you've done, you know, presentation. It's just showing that academic interest. So as long as you've shown it in whatever area and you can explain the leap between whatever you thought you might be going into and wanting to do rheumatology, that's fine. I know that you can be productive and in that way. Yeah. Um, so like I said, it does. I, I, it's great if you've loved rheumatology since you were born, but you know, <laughs> you don't have to. Um, if you made that decision sort of last minute, as long as you just sort of can explain what drove that decision um, and show that you've been sort of like committed as a medical learner before that point, um, regardless of what your interest was, I think that that's totally fair and yeah. still competitive. Okay, very cool. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see a personal statement. Like the first time I saw that Humera commercial, I knew <laughs> I knew that's what I wanted. Like, <laughs> no, the, the personal statement is a little, a little stronger than that. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I've seen some pretty bad ones. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan. They can either. Yeah, from my standpoint, they can either. Few are amazing and few are awful, but the rest are all kind of. They're just there, and you, know, you look at the there. rest. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, so for the osteopathic medical student and resident at this point, for someone uh, who has gone that path, how do they potentially overcome some of the negative bias in the, the rheumatology world, if there is any, from your perspective? You know, I don't think that in rheumatology there's as much of a bias because a lot of the DO pathway and um, other training really emphasizes some of the stuff that we're interested in. So like musculoskeletal, mm-hmm. you know, anatomy, care, um, you know, they have, they have a good understanding of, of musculoskeletal disease. And so I don't think it's necessarily um, a drawback or, you know, something that's looked down on. I think it really comes back to more um, just showing pursuit of academic stuff. So yeah. 
whether it's presenting at your conferences, like, you know, some MDs might not be as familiar with some of the, um, like I said, DO programs and, and what, you know, which one is a more competitive program or what sort of sets you apart. Um, so being able to be evaluated on something that's like an even playing field. Uh, so, you know, whether or not you're an MD or a DO, you can still present at any of these medical types of meetings or, you know, even if you're giving conferences at your own institution, um, just showing that you're doing that and, yeah. and actively engaged and stuff, I think are uh, is fair. I don't think there's a huge bias at least yeah. that I'm aware of. Good. So you had mentioned that you have an interest in kind of a subspecialty in vasculitis. Mm-hmm. When someone finishes their fellowship for rheumatology, are there further fellowships, whether kind of ACGME accredited or not, that students can or residents at that point can go or fellows at that point can go and, yeah. and further subspecialize? Or is it more just kind of picking what you like and just doing that? So it's a little of both. Um, there aren't ACGME specific fellowships. Uh, you know, there is non-ACGME like, you know, and, and T32, like NIH funded research years and things like that. So mm-hmm. if you do have an interest in a specific area of, of clinical research or translational research, um, there's definitely pathways for that. Uh, the American College of Rheumatology has has great resources um, for people interested in, in sort of pursuing research, uh, young investigators, and also for residents and medical students, too, actually, who are interested in rheumatology who may not have that expertise at their own, you know, institutions um, to gain experience and be able to try to get their feet wet, I guess, mm-hmm. um, in rheumatology. Um, but in terms of, you know, me being interested in vasculitis, the Vasculitis Foundation has a, um, a, a fellowship for people who are interested in vasculitis where they can go to certain um, centers of excellence that really have a high volume of vasculitis because it's not super common um, when you're just thinking about general medicine or general rheumatology. And so if, in order to be really specialized in it, you want to have a, a high comfort level and see a lot of volume of those patients, you know? Yeah. Um, so they offer that. Again, this isn't like an ACGME type of year, but you can you can pursue other types of specific training. Um, but a lot of it is really just figuring out what you're interested in and getting, you know, your name out there and, and seeing those patients and, you know, whether it's being involved in cl- clinical trials or uh, giving talks on the topic, whatever it is, you kind of just sort of carve out um, which area you're going to specialize in. Again, in general rheumatology, you don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, and even in an academic center, you don't necessarily have to have one area, um, but a lot of people do. And it kind of is another sort of sub-community, which, which is fun. I mean, for me, the vasculitis community is amazing, and it's a really supportive group of people who are excited about the same stuff as me. And so that always kind of challenges you and makes you excited to, to get a little deeper in that area, you know, and, yeah. and learn more. For the future primary care doc listening to this, whether Mm -hmm. pediatrics through internal medicine, family practice, what do you wish they knew about rheumatology and and what you're doing day in and day out to hopefully help help their patients and and you ultimately when those patients come to you? I mean, it's tough. Like I said, I think that there's just uh, because people don't quite know exactly what we're doing sometimes. I think, you know, there's this sense that like, you know, if someone's tired, you order an ANA, and if it's a borderline ANA, I mean, that's one of the things that just leads to so much um, referral and downstream costs for me. So that's one of my own personal sort of, sort of pet peeves. Um, but I think uh, I think it's tough. And so, you know, giving someone a diagnosis and saying like, oh, you ha- you know, you were tired and you had a positive ANA and you have lupus is, is very difficult to undo. And so I yeah. think um, over Give, over-labeling patients can be a, a danger that I think is is tough because then once the patient comes to see me, then I'm telling them that that might not really be the case. They, 
you know, it's, it's a lot harder to undo a diagnosis than to give one, I think, yeah. um, in some cases. So, uh, I don't know if that really answers the question, but <laughs> I kind of just think like, uh, not, not over ordering tests or really thinking about what you're ordering when you're ordering it is, is an important thing. Um, communicating is important. You know, if you have a specific question in mind that, that you want us to answer, patients come in, they don't always really know why they're there. And they're just like, I was just told to come. So yeah. trying to figure that out can be really difficult when you've got a short visit with a patient as a specialist, you know? Um, and so just explaining why they're being sent to me, whether it's to me or to the patient, uh, is, is very helpful, you know, so I can give back the feedback that's actually useful to you and to the patient as, you know, a primary care provider. Yeah. Would you go so far as to say that that some all, well, we're, we're painting with very broad strokes right now to say, like, we should lock down ANA so only rheumatologists <laughs> should, no. can order it? No, no, no. I mean, it's not <laughs> that extreme. There is definitely utility. I think it's more about um, not having that high pretest probability, right? So if you're mm -hmm. just ordering it like willy-nilly or if you're just ordering it randomly on patients um, just to see, it can just lead to a lot more anxiety and cost than, than, it, than there should be. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not that there, you know, that's a special test that only I have the insight to order. <laughs> it's just that, um, you know, it, can, it, it just should be ordered with thought. Yeah. Um, and with care. And yeah. so, yeah, no, no, it's not like yeah. that. <laughs> and it doesn't help that it's just not a very super easily interpretable test either. No, I mean, one in five people has a positive ANA with yeah. no underlying connective tissue disease. So it's one of those tests that's, you know, like I said, it just can lead to a lot of anxiety and, and people don't really know how to interpret it. Um, and that's fine. And it's not interpretable really in its own right. It doesn't give you any diagnosis. So the important part, again, comes back to the patient's story, clinical exam, other lab findings that are more specific. Um, so, you know, like yeah. I said, as long as there's not a label given to someone based on one blood test, which they're really in rheumatology, never really should yeah. be. So, uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think I was listening to uh, Dr. Topol, Eric Topol, the cardiologist, um, mm -hmm. about... Uh, it was on a podcast and I, I'm pretty sure it was him and, and don't quote me, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was him that said there was something with ANA with him where he could eat something like very specific and cause uh -huh. his ANA to go up and then not eat it for a week and then test his ANA and it's back down. So again, very super weird test. Well, yeah. Well, that's weird. Also, don't test it so much. <laughs> because, yeah. Because that's another thing. Like, you know, you don't keep repeating a test to, to find it to go positive or negative, yeah. you know, the ANA, especially there are certain tests, like I said, like the double stranded DNA, those get more elevated in active disease in certain cases or complements will drop in like active lupus, you know, um, the ANA titer does not go up and down with like more sick or less sick necessarily. So yeah. you don't need to keep checking it. It's yeah. just an extra test that'll, like I said, drive up care costs and drive up anxiety. And mm -hmm. As a room, extra blood. <laughs> yeah. As a vam vampirism. Um, yeah. <laughs> as a rheumatologist, what other specialties are you working the closest with? Um, like I said, room is is super multi organ. So, um, I personally, so we work with a lot with different specialties. I think within medicine, there's a lot of overlap with um, pulmonary, like interstitial lung disease. Um, there's a lot with nephrology, like glomerulonephritis diseases. Um, I'd say pulmonary, uh, nephrology, some with GI, especially with the spondyloarthritis. Um, so our medicine colleagues, definitely also dermatology, a ton of overlap there and neurology. And then with subs, with surgical subspecialties, I do a lot, um, with, uh, ENT because of the vasculitis and then also opto, ortho, uh, yeah. 
those are some of the main ones that that pop out. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for rheumatologists? Most commonly, it seems like industry is is a big one. I mean, yeah, there's so many. Um, there's so much happening in uh, in terms of our discovery, in terms of like the pathogenesis and, and targeted treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's cool because at least people are starting to recognize what rheumatology is and, and that there's like so much happening and going on that's exciting in the field. So I think industry is obviously huge. There's a you know a breakthrough in terms of the medications that we have available to offer our patients. Um, but also on the research side, trying to figure out the pathways and uh, develop the stuff that becomes, you know, targeted things and biomarkers and stuff like that. So there's a lot in clinical research, basic science, translational research. Um, and then obviously there's a huge, I don't know, if, and maybe not obviously, there's a huge uh, workforce shortage. Um, and we recently, you know, the American College of Rheumatology has looked into that and published on it and we're trying to expand the workforce a lot. Rheumatology is a relatively small field compared to other specialties, but with um, with the aging population and with like with the new treatments, patients are living longer with our diseases and, and getting diagnosed earlier. So there's a huge demand. Um, wait times are kind of insane. And so <laughs> outside of clinical medicine, there's a lot, but also within clinical medicine, um, I think with, with the shortage of rheumatologists, we do need more people to see patients. Yeah. Um, but there are really exciting opportunities in terms of, uh, you know, pharma and, and research as well. Yeah. Um, so what do you know now that you wish you knew going into rheumatology? Hmm. I guess I kind of already knew how awesome it was. (laughs) I was lucky to have gotten exposed to it early. And so I was able to get, like I said, get a good sense of what what really it entailed. What do you like the most about being a rheumatologist? Oh, I like love a lot of things about it. I think um, honestly, like the the team, I I love, I love being in my area because I have, you know, residents and fellows. So I love teaching. I mean, that's a major thing for me, but really the patients are amazing. They're so resilient. Um, I really like listening to the stories and, and, being able to really piece things together. I think rheumatology is a field where we really still like focus heavily and rely heavily on like the story and the clinical exam. Um, and I think those are, that's like I said, super important and, and, and exciting to me. Um, I think, yeah, I think the fact that, that the diseases affect so many different organs and that I can collaborate with people in so many different fields, whether it's surgical or medical or, neurology or dermatology. I just, I really like that type of um, dialogue. And I think that that leads to the best patient care. So for me, that, that collaboration and that multi-organ involvement is, is really uh, exciting and stimulating. What do you like the least? (laughs) Nothing. It's all perfect. Um, (laughs) No, I, uh, I guess, oh, you know, honestly, probably because um, a lot of these medicines are, we're just figuring things out and a lot of them aren't completely FDA approved for every indication. So mm-hmm. honestly, one of the least, um, least rewarding parts or most frustrating parts is, is arguing for, uh, approval. So like prior odds, yeah. um, coverage for getting the patients the medicines that I know that they need or want, um, or should be on. And then being told that I can't get it for yeah. them is, is probably <laughs> the most frustrating piece. Yeah. And you usually yeah. speaking to a non-rheumatologist at the insurance company. Yeah. It, yeah. So it's it, that that's trying because I mean, it's every patient is pretty much on a non FDA approved medicine, you know, because I are not all of them. But, you know, like I said, it's 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 a challenge. Yeah. Giving patients, the medicine that they need. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of rheumatology that a medical student or a resident should be aware of before they decide this is what they want? Um, I think there's going to be a lot more interest in like, uh, like I said, targeted therapies. I think we're moving mm-hmm. closer slowly towards like 
the cancer world in terms of uh, being able to actually figure out what medicine works best in which patient. I think that's a really exciting area, but I think there's that will come um, with time and research. Um, I think that we are going to be using a lot more ultrasound um, and following our European colleagues in that um, for, for trying to make, you know, certain types of diagnoses. So I think there will be advances in imaging. Um, I think there will hopefully be advances in biomarkers. And, um, and I think we will be incorporating the use of physician extenders a lot more just because, like I said, with the, with the workforce shortage, I think there will be a, an expansion in that area as well. Um, yeah, I think those are the main things. Awesome. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a rheumatologist? <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. It's really, I, I mean, again, I'm super biased. I run a program. Um, I, I think it's shocking. It's taken this long for people to realize how awesome it is, but it's happened. So, um, yes, I would hundred percent do it again. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student pre-med or a resident listening to this potentially now interested in rheumatology? I mean, yeah, do what makes you happy. You know, like I said, I, I think that you have to be honest to yourself. I think people, you know, you get into medicine, working really hard and, and, and generally doing well. Um, you know, so, uh, stay positive. Don't let, don't let little things, setbacks or mini failures. Don't think of them as failures. Just try to, uh, work through stuff, rely on each other, rely on, you know, mentors and colleagues and things like that. Um, I think, you know, it's a really exciting time though, though, you know, everything is open to you. Um, I think it's just really important to figure out, you know, what really makes you happy, not just what did you think you go in, you know, you went into medicine for and what you think you wanted to become now that you're like actually getting exposed to these different areas and people and fields and patients. Um, just step back and really think about like, is this something that I want to do every day? Are these the people I want to work with? Is this the type of setting I want? Um, that should really drive your decision because this is something, you know, you can always change and at any point in your life, but this is what you'll be doing hopefully for the rest of your life. So, um, be honest with yourself and, uh, and then, and be excited about what you're doing. Cause honestly, if you're not excited, then it's, it's going to be a drag, you know, and this is like, if you love it, it every day is awesome. So just figure out what really makes you excited and, and then follow it. All right. So there you have it again, Dr. Dua, a rheumatologist who's been out of training now for eight years, nine years almost. And I wanted to let you know that if you enjoyed this podcast episode, if you enjoy this podcast and you are a pre-med student, go check out the pre-med years. If you're a medical student, go check out board rounds. And if you're not either of those, what are you doing here? <laughs> Just kidding. Thanks for, thanks for being here. I know actually a lot of non-medical people that are listening to this podcast because they're just interested in learning more about physicians and what they're doing. And maybe with the pandemic, more of you are listening, just trying to get a feel for what's going on out in the world. But seriously, thank you for taking some time to join me today to listen to the conversation between myself and Dr. Dua. And if you are a student, I would love for you to share this with your classmates, with an advisor, with your school, whoever you think uh, could benefit from listening to these episodes. I hope you have a great week. I hope you're staying safe in the middle of this pandemic. And I hope to speak to you next week here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.